So, if you had to guess, what would you say is the most common question posed to Christianity? Uh, I didn't look up any statistics for this, but I would imagine, if I had to guess, the question would be, why bad things happen? Now, there's a lot of variations on this question. Um, You know, you have the, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? How can a good God allow evil to exist? And, And so on. And these questions also come from a a myriad of different places. Um, On the one hand, you have the most vehement God-hater who's trying to back Christianity into a corner with the question. And on the other hand, you have the most sincere Christian who is struggling with tragedy. I do want to point out, though, that the question is not so much a logical question, um, well, a logical problem, as much as it's a psychological problem. So logically, God could have... Uh, perfectly moral reasons for allowing bad things to happen, but from our limited human perspective, we can struggle with that. So, in an attempt to to ease that struggle, many people have tried to answer the question, Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of really bad answers out there. So, most of these bad answers, they call into question one of three of God's attributes. Um, Either, one, God is not powerful enough to stop bad things from happening, and that's a problem. Two, um, God has no way of knowing that bad things are going to happen, so he can't stop them if he doesn't know. Or three, God is simply malicious and does not care to stop bad things from happening. Now, obviously, any one of these avenues is problematic and in direct conflict with what the Bible teaches about God's character. Now, luckily for us, the Bible does uh, address the question of why bad things happen, But unfortunately for those who like straight answers, like myself, um, the Bible doesn't really give us a straight answer. But I actually think that's for the best, and I think that for two, two reasons. Firstly, the issue is far more complicated than we may initially think. And secondly, I don't I don't really think we need a straight answer, as much as we may want one. Because ultimately the question boils down to do we trust God? that God is the all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, and all-good God that he says he is. So the big idea today is that we are in a poor position to distrust God. We are in a poor position to distrust God. Now, for some context, the book of Job uh, details a time in the life of this dude named Job. The book happens to be named after him. Um, The book opens with a prologue, which describes Job as being a very wealthy person and also a very righteous person. And we also, in this prologue, we get a behind-the-scenes view of heaven where God himself says that Job is very righteous, so we can be assured that Job is a good, a good dude. Now, after this, the Satan shows up and literally plays devil's advocate. He suggests, perhaps, perhaps Job only follows God because God blesses him so much. So to prove that this is not the case to the rest of heaven, God allows Satan to test Job but he says to not hurt Job's body. So the Satan runs, um, ruins all of Job's possessions. He loses his house, he loses all his stuff, uh, most of his family pass away, and he is immediately destitute. Yet even in this, Job continues to praise God. So then the Satan suggested that obviously Job would, Job would still praise God um, as long as his, he's got his health. So... God allows the Satan to afflict Job with bodily harm. 
so long as he doesn't kill him. So after this, Job develops a terrible and painful disease, um, and then we get into the main chunk of the book. This chunk revolves around a series of discussions between Job and three of his friends, um, who all suggest that Job must be suffering because obviously he committed some sort of heinous sin. Of course, Job continually holds fast to his innocence, and we know as readers that he is in fact innocent. Uh, But then Job asks God to come down to him so that he could present his case to him. So after considerable back-and-forth arguments, this young guy named Elihu shows up. And he's probably, he probably has the most accurate perspective of all, of all the, the people so far. Um, and finally, after this, God decides to answer Job directly. But rather than revealing the conversation between himself and Satan, Jaws, uh, God chooses to point out the differences between himself and Job, which is the, the subject of today's sermon. Uh, now, obviously, it's a pretty big um, topic we're, we're tackling here this morning, and so there's a lot more intricacies in the book of Job that I, I can't get into for the sake of time. Um, but the first thing I'd like to point out is the first difference between God and us is that God is all-powerful, and we are not. God is all-powerful, and we are not. In verse, in verse 2 of our text, Job says, I know, I keep saying Job, Job, <laughs> Job says, I know you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, what Job says here seems obvious, and most of us would agree with the statement, um, but it bears repeating, and it is beneficial to think about. The point is that there is a clear and obvious difference between um, us and God in both power and authority. And ultimately, this is a good thing, uh, but it is also humbling as well. Uh, So look with me to a portion of God's response to Job at the beginning of chapter uh, 38. We're not going to read the whole thing because it's like about two chapters long, uh, but we're going to read a section here. Uh, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding... Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And prescribed limits for the, and set bars and doors and said, Thus... Far shall you come, and no farther. And here you, shall be, uh, here you shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? That it may take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked shall be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken." So he continues on for a, a few more chapters after that, but the, the point is obvious. Job is not in the same league as God. Job is sort of like a six-year-old backseat driver here, a little bit. Um, now, you might have experienced this before, um, but for the uninitiated, there is this phenomenon where some six-year-olds seem to think they know everything, including how to drive your car. All the while, not having the foggiest clue about driver safety nor can they even reach the pedals. 
but they nonetheless have strong opinions about how one should pilot an automobile. Now, don't do this, obviously, but imagine if you were to put a six-year-old in the driver's seat. They would probably be super stoked about it for like 30 seconds until they realize they're completely unequipped to handle the situation. And and then much like the six-year-old, we are not in a great position to critique how God orders the world because we are powerless to affect the world in the same way that he does. Similarly, we also don't have the authority to critique how God orders the world. In the approximate words of the great philosopher Spider-Man, with great power comes great authority. Uh, Since God created everything, including us, he has every right to do with us as he pleases. Now, that might strike you as a little harsh, and I'm going to be honest with you, it's kind of a hard pill to swallow. And part of it is because our our society is so autonomous. We hold individualism in a very high regard, and, uh, and so this kind of sticks in our craw a little bit. But Paul himself makes that argument in Romans chapter 9, verse 20. He says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? So God really does have the right to do with the world whatever he pleases. And in a vacuum, that is a a potentially scary thought. I, I I will grant you that. Until we realize that our God is also a benevolent God. But more on that later. The point is that we tend to get an inflated view of ourselves, and it's important for us to really realize what we're asking. When we come before God, yes, he is, he's loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, uh, but he's also holy and righteous and immensely powerful. And that should instill in us a degree of holy fear and awe. And that's something we, we sometimes downplay because it's a little bit uncomfortable uh, to think about, but look what Proverbs has to say on the topic. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And this is, this is a continual tagline throughout the book of Proverbs. You'll see it pop up again and again and again. And it clearly, uh, it certainly fits into what the, the point that God's trying to make to Job here. We ought to have humility when we approach God. Now, that being said, uh, of course, it's, it's okay and even a good thing to be honest with God and to express your frustration and express your concern. Um, and you see this all the time in other scriptures. Um, just look at the Psalms or Lamentations. They're very, very um, rich with descriptive terms about the, the, the writer's frustrations. And God himself never really gets on to Job, uh, Job for being hurt or confused. But he does remind Job of who God is in relation to himself. So when you are confronted by tragedy, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to even be angry. But through it, we need to understand to trust God's power and trust God's authority. And ultimately, this should be an encouraging thought. Because in that, we understand the universe is not ordered by random chance. And you and I are not left to flounder amidst a sea of meaningless chaos. We are instead under the watchful eye of an intentional and powerful God who does care about his creation. So my second point today is that God is all-knowing and we are not. God is all-knowing and we are not. Job says in verse 3, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. 
it's really easy for us to forget how incredibly limited our perspective is. As finite human beings, we are forced to view everything through the lens of our own culture, our, our time, personal bias, and experience. And this all takes place in a single lifespan, which, if we're lucky, is you know, maybe 100 years, maybe a little bit less. And when we, when we take into account the thousands of years the world has been turning, we really have a very, very tiny window from which to view it. And it may be obvious, but the world is a whole lot bigger than we are. <clears throat> so it's, it's really quite hard or even impossible for us to get an accurate beat on everything that's going on at a given time. So I'll give you a, a practical example of what I mean. So take, for instance, me standing before you and talking. Um, there are a staggering amount of things that had to happen for this to take place. And I personally only had control over a very few amount of them. Um, I can't, for one, account for how I was raised. I can't account for the people that influenced me. I can't account for where I was born. Um, I can't account for the desires God placed in me to, devote, um, to motivate me toward a certain direction. And I honestly have no clue what ramifications all of that has on other people, myself, or future events. I can maybe take a guess, but chances are it's not going to be a fully accurate um, guess because there's just too many variables to account for. And that's just a, a single thread of my life without even considering all the other threads of my life or the threads of everyone else's life. It very quickly becomes extraordinarily complex. And that's not even to mention all the things outside of anyone's control, like the weather, um, how the animals in this world work out the circle of life. And so it becomes a, a vast tapestry of spider web that just gets endlessly complicated. And to make it even more confusing, the human perspective tends to naturally be kind of a self-focused perspective. And the thing is, everyone is this way. And so, um, for instance, what is bad for the mouse is good for the cat. Now, I'm not saying that morality is subjective or that bad things don't really exist. And in fact, I believe the exact opposite. Um, but I am saying that we as fallible human beings often have flawed perspectives. And from a purely practical standpoint, different people, and you guys know this to be true, different people have different reactions to, reactions to the same event. So now the question, why do bad things happen, starts to get very muddy. And this is compounded by the fact that not everything that we think of being bad is actually evil. Like I said, some things are objectively evil, but some things aren't. For instance, a, a destructive earthquake. Um, there's nothing objectively evil about that. And yes, it can be extremely tragic, but it's not inherently morally evil. And this is, uh, this is part of the argument that God makes toward the end of chapter 42. Uh, he describes two beasts, uh, Behemoth and Leviathan. And we don't know exactly what they are. Maybe they're like dinosaurs, or maybe they're um, analogies for some sort of animal that we have today. Um, but the point is, they are both extremely dangerous and powerful. But at the same time, they're not evil. And if we were to encounter them, it would probably be tragic in the same way that if you um, try to wrestle a crocodile, it's, it's probably not going to be a good time. But that doesn't make the crocodile evil. That's just how the crocodile is. Now, other times, objectively evil things can produce good things. Take, for instance, the story of Joseph. 
You guys know the story of Joseph. You know the coat of many colors. Um, maybe you saw the movie that was actually super awesome. Um, but at one point in time, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And no one's going to say that that was a good thing. No one's going to say that was a moral thing. And in fact, even the scripture that details the story paints it as a bad thing. But from that instance, uh, uh, Joseph's whole family was saved from a famine. And then that allowed them to grow into a huge nation. And eventually, down the line, Jesus came from that family. Not to mention the fact that even Egypt prospered from, from that. And there's this, uh, there's this line towards the end of uh, Genesis that says, um, where Joseph is talking to his brothers, and he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that every bad thing is a good thing in disguise, but it does happen. Now, us looking back at events like that, um, we have 2020 vision. We can see how that all played out in the end. Um, but imagine you're Joseph in the middle of that. Um, I'm, I'm sure that he did not see being sold into slavery as um, a beneficial thing in the end. I mean, I wouldn't for sure, and I doubt that he would. Um, And that's because Joseph has a limited perspective, just like we have limited perspectives. Now, a third type of bad thing we encounter is a direct result of sin. So this would be someone uh, losing all the money in their checking account because someone hacked them. Now, this type of bad thing is a little different because we do understand that our God is just and that he does punish sin. However, what's more challenging for us to grasp is that we need to know that God's timetable is not necessarily our timetable. So, take the hypothetical guy who hacked into a bank account. So, God might choose to act immediately through the legal system and the guy gets sent to the pokey. Or, It could very well be that this hypothetical thief never suffers any consequences in this life for his actions, but he does in the next. Or perhaps he realizes the error of his ways, repents and turns to Christ, at which point the penalty of his sin is put squarely on the shoulders of Jesus on the cross. In any of these cases, the sin is dealt with and justice is upheld. But yet again, we don't have the privilege of being able to look behind the veil and seeing how that all plays out in the end because, again, we're finite beings with a limited perspective. In other words, that knowledge is above our pay grade, and we have to be okay with that. There are some things we're just not meant to know. And if you are a little too curious for your own good, like me, um, that's a tough pill to swallow. I like to know everything that's going on all the time, and I... I can't, and I have to be okay with that. And even in the interaction between Job and God, um, like I said, Job never finds out about the interaction between God and the Satan. He never learns about that, but he doesn't need to. God never really tells him why he suffered, and he doesn't have to know, because it's not his place to know everything that happens the way it does. In the same way, it's not our place to know why things are the way they are, and that's okay. So, for us, we need to be like Job and trust that God knows what he's doing. And after all, who's more equipped to handle it all than the one who created it all? Now, my third point is that God is all good and we are not. God is all good and we are not. 
So look with me to Job 42, verses 10 through 11. And so this, this comes right after our main text today. Um, and so it says this, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before, and he ate bread with them in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Now, a quick disclaimer here. Um, when I was working on this, I was kind of tripped up by that phrase, um, evil that the Lord had brought him. So I looked into it to see what it was saying. And the word evil there is uh, not necessarily referring to moral evil. Um, it can sometimes refer to that, uh, but more so it's talking about those, those types of bad things that aren't really moral, but they are tragic or unfortunate. Um, so this would be something like an earthquake or the passing of a loved one. Things that are not evil in the moral sense, but are certainly unfortunate for those who have to experience it. And the point of this epilogue is actually quite comforting, and unfortunately, it's oftentimes misinterpreted. So, and I'm one of those misinterpreters a long time ago, um, because some interpreters claim that God is blessing Job here because Job passed God's test. But, of course, that kind of cuts against the argument that the author had spent 41 chapters making. So really, the reason God blesses Job here is simply because God wanted to. Job didn't earn this blessing. He didn't pass a test. God just saw fit to bless him. And this is only one example of God's benevolence. Um, Think with me, for instance, um, when Israel is running in the wilderness. They're wandering around in the wilderness and... Uh, what is it that God fed them with daily? It was the, the manna from heaven, right? And eventually they got bored of that. They thought it was bland and they didn't want it, and so they wanted God to send them meat. And it's, it's kind of funny because they're, they're literally being sustained every day by what God is providing, but that's, that's not good enough. Um, but God does end up sending some quail to them, and... That's an example of God's benevolence because he didn't have to do that. He could again could have just kept sending them manna like he had been, but he still gave them what they asked for, even when their attitudes were totally um, out of whack. Or remember how God turned away his wrath from Nineveh, even though he promised to destroy them for their wickedness. Or even think of your own life. When God sent rain on a dry dry crop for you farmers, or you experienced an unexpected and very needed act of kindness from a friend in a time of crisis. Most of all, think of how God sent his only son to die on the cross for the sins that we committed. Our God is a benevolent God. And when we ask how a good God can allow bad things to happen, we're really implying that God is not good. And that's that's a really dangerous mistake to make, uh, because who else implied that? The very beginning of the Bible, uh, the serpent implied that. If you remember back to the very first sin of Adam and Eve, what did the serpent suggest? Now, so God doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because... 
Um, if you did, you would be like him. And God is just a, a curmudgeon. He wants to keep it all to himself, and he doesn't want anyone else to be awesome. But if you eat it, you'll be awesome. Because God is just keeping that, that awesomeness from you. And he was saying that God must not be good. And we all know how that ended up. Of course, you know, humanity since then has been um, naturally opposed to God and, and we're, we're cursed in a sense. Now, in the garden, Adam and Eve distrusted God's character and that is the very thing we do when we ask how a good God can allow bad things to happen. In essence, we claim, whether we realize it or not, we claim that we have a better idea of what a good God should do. We attempt to f- define goodness for ourselves. And the problem is, the moment we do this, goodness ceases to have any real meaning. Because if goodness and badness is up to us to define, then morality becomes a matter of opinion. And if morality is a matter of opinion, then we really can't claim that objectively bad things happen at all. All we can really say is that we personally don't prefer certain circumstances or certain actions. And this is what I touched on earlier when I spoke about how we as humans can have flawed perspectives. Because we know that objectively bad things do happen. And the other thing is we really ought not to be so surprised when we encounter those objectively bad things. Because as a human race, we do truly awful things to one another. And a lot of these objectively bad things are the fault of our own sin. Things such as murder or child neglect. And I won't rehash how God handles that, other than to point out that as a people, we're not as innocent as we'd like to think. Yet even with that in mind, God still continues to bless us. Uh, look with me what Jesus says in Matthew 5.45. It's really quite interesting. He says, So that you may be uh, sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's a really interesting thing to think about. Because, you know, if God's all-powerful, he could technically, if he wanted to, uh, just as easily make it rain on only the land of the good people or have the sun only come up on the land of the good people. Uh, but instead, God chooses to be merciful, even though we don't deserve it. And that's really at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? There we were hating God, defining good and evil for ourselves, thinking we're just, as, just fine the way that we are, completely oblivious to our own foolishness. And yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we put it in that context, questioning the goodness of God seems much more far-fetched if he would go so far as to send his only son to die for the people that hated him. So we have proof of God's benevolence in the gospel. So what do we do when we find ourselves asking why bad things happen? We need to trust that we need to trust in God because God is all-powerful, He is all-knowing, and He is all-good. And we are, frankly, woefully unequipped to critique how He has chosen to order the universe. Now, there's probably a bunch of different kinds of people in this room from all kinds of walks of life. Maybe, for instance, you're an atheist who, who hates God. And to you, we say that tragedy doesn't disprove the existence of God. 
And we invite you to accept the benevolence of God in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Maybe, maybe you're not an atheist. Maybe you're brokenhearted over something that's happened and you wonder, is God really good? Again, look no farther than the cross to see that God cares deeply for the brokenhearted. Trust that all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So if, we don't, if you don't know Christ today, we invite you to trust him and believe in his sacrifice to save you from your sins. Dear Lord, we thank you for how good you are, and we ask that you would help us to have a better understanding of you and better understanding of uh, why things are the way they are. In the sense that we don't need to know all the details, but we need to ultimately trust that you're good, you're faithful, you're consistent, and that um, the world you've created is a good world. We understand that in our sin we've uh, tainted it, but we also understand that in your love you've created a way for sin to be killed. So Lord, help us to look forward to the day you come again and reign on your throne forever. Give us a trust in your goodness. Give us a trust in your benevolence. And give us comfort in times of tragedy. Because everyone's afflicted by tragedy from time to time. And we ask that you would be there for us and you would give us um, people around us who can help us. We thank you, Lord, for your love. And we ask that we would understand it more each and every day. Amen.